Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your sustaining grace this week and this year already of 2021 and last year. And just thank you for the fact that we can trust you, that we can rely upon you and not lean upon our own understanding. Thank you for the fact that though we may not fully understand everything that goes on in our world, that we can bank upon the rock, the foundation, the fortress, the ever-present help in time of trouble that you are. So we thank you for that. Father, this morning we are well aware of many in our body who are going through physical trials, physical afflictions, who have had diagnoses of difficult things in their lives. And I just pray for them that you would sustain them, that you would uphold them, that you might remind them of your presence, of your care, of your concern for them. I pray, Father, that we might come alongside of them and continue to support them and bear their burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, the law of love. Father, we pray for our country this morning as well. We are comforted by your divine sovereignty over all things. And Father, as we did four years ago with the transition of government then, and we prayed then for that transition to be in accordance with your glory, Lord, in the midst of even sinful men and sinful entities, Lord, four years ago and now four years later, we can say the same thing. Father, we do pray for our government this morning. We pray for this week. We pray that you would help us as your people to trust you, to not fear, Lord, for ultimately we do not put our faith and our trust in governments or politics or politicians or materialism or our possessions or anything else going on in life. We put our faith and our trust in Christ alone. And so we pray that you would help us to be people who trust you this week, to be people who are peacemakers, bringing the gospel to bear upon conversations through social media and person and all of that, even in our community and in our neighborhoods, that we would bring the truth of the gospel to bear upon this world, this desperately sick and wicked world that needs hope, and that hope is found only in Christ. Lord, we pray for your people this morning, that you would uphold us, that you would sustain us. You are Heavenly Father. Pray for this morning as well for the preaching and listening and application and appropriation of your word, that you would help us to be people who would not only be hearers of your word, but doers who are not self-deceived. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 is our text for this morning, verses 20 to 26. Mark 11, verses 20 to 26. And I want to read these verses for us. Mark 11, verses 20 to 26. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who is in heaven Forgive your transgressions. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. 
The title of this morning's message is People of Faith in Godless Times. People of Faith in Godless Times. And I know that you feel it even for this week as we prepare for a transition of government and many other things going on in our lives. How desperately we need to be people of faith in godless times. Well, I don't know. Uh, my brother, Pastor Jay, mentioned a little while ago that we are obviously in our daily Bible reading. We're three weeks into that. How many of you have actually jumped on the Bible reading bandwagon this uh, year? Amen. And I know many of you live stream have done the same thing as well. And like you, I've been enjoying our daily Bible reading and just enjoying the many lessons that God is already teaching me about himself and the gospel and obviously who we are and how we ought to respond to circumstances in life and all of that. And I don't know if you have this struggle, but you know, I've, I struggle and I do every year. I have a hard time just sticking to the passages for that day and not cross-referencing. How many of you struggle with that? You start just going to other places that maybe clarify or expand upon or um, elucidate a particular passage. And so I have a hard time doing that. It's hard to just stick to one passage and not go out of these other, other places in Scripture and just get clarification and just be encouraged by other parts of God's Word. And so this week, I wandered off to Luke 18. To Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, where, where Jesus is teaching His disciples on the need for persistent, persevering kind of prayer. It says there in chapter 18 of Luke that he told them a parable so that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. That was the lesson that he was wanting to to teach them. And so as an object lesson of this, he teaches them this parable about this, this little widow who keeps coming to this judge over and over relentlessly and repeatedly to ask her to ask him for protection from her enemies. Legal protection from her enemies. And at first, obviously, he's reluctant and all of that. But she keeps coming and coming and coming, asking for legal protection and all of that. And so, eventually, this judge gives in to this little lady. And of course, Jesus' point is that if human judges on the human level give in to persistent people like that, how much more, and in its purest sense, in its perfect sense, your heavenly Father answers persistent prayer. And Luke 18, verse 8 is really the punchline for the parable where Jesus says these sobering words. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Beloved, I believe with all of my heart that that is... Something that the Lord is asking of us during these days as well. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? For every single one of us, no matter where you are in life, the question that God is asking of us is, will you trust Me? Will you keep My Word? Yes, things are challenging. Yes, things are difficult. Yes, things are uncertain. But I'm still on my throne. I'm still saving people. I'm still sanctifying you through many trials and tribulations. You will enter the kingdom of God. Will you trust me? Will I find faith on the earth? I'm still in control. I'm still growing my kingdom. Will you and I trust our Lord? You see, faith is so important for us as God's people, isn't it? We feel that. We know that. 
especially in the events of this past year in our lives. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because our faith says something, communicates something about our own view of God. Whether it is low or whether it is a high view of God. Our faith says something about how we think of God. How we perceive God. If He is trustworthy or if He isn't. Well, faith is a central theme that I really want us to consider this morning in this text. Both the nature of faith and the practice of faith in this passage, Mark chapter 11, verses 20 to 26. And if you're taking notes, as our Lord teaches on faith here, we see, first of all, dead faith illustrated. Dead faith illustrated in verses 20 to 21. Look at verse 20. The text says, as they were passing by in the morning, this is Jesus and his 12 disciples, if you remember. As they're passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Verse 21, being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now let's remember that this is now Tuesday morning of Passion Week. The final week of our Lord's life, at least before His death, His physical death on earth. And this Tuesday is going to be a full, packed day, full of emotion for our Lord. In fact, Mark chapter 11, verse 20, all the way to Mark chapter 13 and verse 37 happens all on this Tuesday of Passion Week. And a quick survey of these chapters shows us that it's on this Tuesday that Jesus is going to duke it out with the Jewish leaders over the question of authority. He's also on this Tuesday going to teach them about the parable of the vine growers, prompting them to to seize him. It's on this Tuesday that his enemies will try to get him in trouble by showing him a a, um, Caesar's image on a coin, trying to get him in trouble with the Roman government. It's on this Tuesday that he will teach on the resurrection and on the greatest commandment, the chief commandment of all, as prompted by a Jewish scribe, his question. It's on this Tuesday that he will pronounce his woes on the religious leaders. It's on this Tuesday that he will commend the widow's offering while condemning the hypocrisy of those in the temple yet again. It's on this Tuesday that he will teach his lengthy Olivet Discourse of the things that are to come on the last days. We're going to be doing a series later on in a couple of months or so, on the last days, in accordance with those scriptures. It's on this Tuesday that he will teach parables on the good man, the wise and evil servant, the the ten virgins, the talents, and the sheep and the goats. All of this happens on Tuesday. This particular day, brothers and sisters, is going to be a long, physically taxing, emotionally charged, spiritually challenging day for our Lord. Things will really pick up on this particular Tuesday as Jesus now heads to the cross of Calvary. Quite the day. And so it's on this Tuesday morning, then, that they are traveling on the same road that they traveled on Monday, the previous day. And verse 20, if you notice, says that they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. This is the same fig tree that the Lord had cursed on the previous day on Monday in accordance with, or as verses 12 through 14 tell us. And Jesus had cursed the fig tree 
as a symbol of judgment, of condemnation upon the nation of Israel for her false worship, for her hypocrisy, for her lack of devotion to the Lord from the heart, and thus for her fruitlessness. Just as the fig tree looked lush and green on the outside, but failed to produce its fruit, so Israel had done the same thing. It had failed to be devoted to God. And it had turned apostate and thus unfruitful. And as an object lesson, Jesus had said the previous day, if you notice in verse 14 to this fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And so it's now a day later, a day later, where this fig tree is not only completely barren, if you notice, but it's completely dead from its very life source, from its very root. Now keep in mind, they are just now seeing the fig tree on Tuesday. But the cross-reference over in Matthew 21, 19 says that at once the fig tree had withered. It was an immediate miracle of decadence upon that particular fig tree. And once again, as with every miracle that the Lord performs, please notice the great power of Christ and the authority of the Son of, uh, Son of God. We should always and never lose sight, even as you're doing your Bible reading in the Gospel of Luke, we should always be amazed and in wonder and in awe of the fact that when Jesus speaks, when He merely speaks something to happen, that miracle happens instantaneously, definitively, and completely. I mean, the disciples were firsthand witnesses of this. Of miracle after miracle, they had front row seats to Jesus constantly doing these kinds of powerful acts. And here's yet another one again. But this is key. Look at verse 21. Peter, in a sort of surprised kind of way, says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. (laughs) You think, Peter? I mean... What did you expect? Haven't you seen this before? After all, this is is Jesus that we're talking about. This is not just another man. This is the God-man here. This is the same Jesus who has shown his power and his authority over the spiritual realm by casting out powerful demons out of people that a hundred men could not restrain. Jesus has done that. Jesus has shown his power over the the natural realm by calming storms and quieting winds and walking on water. He's shown his great power and authority over the physical realm by healing all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of diseases, paralytics and lepers and blind men have received their sight and people hemorrhaging have been brought completely to wellness and healing. This is that same Jesus full of power, full of authority. But Peter, being Peter again, right, acts somewhat surprised. Even a bit skeptical, skeptical, we might say. That Jesus' words came true as quickly as they did. But Once again, as I reminded us throughout the Gospel of Mark, we shouldn't be so hard on Peter. For, listen... More often than not, we are more like Peter 
than anyone else of those disciples, right? We are so often like Peter. We often do the exact same thing that Peter does here. All we have to do is simply look back at the rearview mirror of our life journey to be reminded, like Peter in the Gospels, as he saw all of Christ's power, we could be reminded of of God's amazing track record of power and authority and faithfulness and kindness and goodness. That He's never let us down. That He's always carried us through great trials. He's always cared for us. He's always provided for us. He's always kept His promises. Has there ever been a time, beloved brother or sister, where God has given you a promise in His Word and He hasn't fulfilled that? Not in my life. Not in my life. And some of you have been walking with the Lord a lot longer than I have, and you can say a hearty amen to the fact that God has fulfilled every promise that He has given you in your life. As a family, we were reminiscing about this the other day. And then yesterday with my wife, again, just the last 21 years of our marriage and our family and the circumstances that we've experienced in life and the trials she and I have gone through personally and then in our marriage and then with our kids and then in various churches. And we were just reminded of, yeah, things are tough in in a broken world, but hasn't God been so faithful? Hasn't God been so kind? Hasn't God been so good? And all of us can do that, right? All of us can be reminded of God's kindness and His goodness and His faithfulness and His love and how relentlessly He has just pursued us even when we were hardened toward Him at various parts of li- uh, 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 points in our lives. And yet, though God has shown us His awesome power through thick and thin, what do we often do, Beloved. We often live, don't we, like practical atheists. We often live like God doesn't exist. Well, sure, heaven forbid we would ever refer to ourselves that way. I'm a, I'm a practical atheist by nature. Who would ever desire to say that about themselves? None of us would. It's simply that we act that way. So oftentimes we respond to life's difficulties that way, to life's challenges that way, like practical atheists, as if God isn't in our circumstances. We may, like Peter, even be shocked, even be surprised when God does yet another thing in our lives that is amazing, or He does the same thing in the life of somebody else. And so as we see Peter's statement in verse 21, We should never respond in the way that He did. And when we do, we should confess that to the Lord. That sense of perplexity or or doubt or even being surprised at the fact that God does amazing things in our lives. Now please notice, this is key, it's on the heels of this statement by Peter with an element of, of surprise that we see, secondly, true faith commanded. True faith commanded in verse 22. We've seen dead faith illustrated by the dead fig tree that Jesus cursed. Now we see true faith commanded in verse 22. Look there. And Jesus answered, saying to them, saying to his disciples, Have faith in God. This is an exhortation by our Lord, not only to Peter, but also to his disciples. 
Have faith in God. Remember, this is, this is the, the last week that Jesus will be with them before his death. And so he's always on training mode with them. And something that he wants to continue to cultivate in their hearts and lives is that they need to trust God. They need to be men of faith in God. And so here on the heels of Peter, just having expressed words of doubt, he exhorts them all, you need to trust God when he says he's going to do something. Trust him. By the way, this is another, in this case, indirect reference to his deity, isn't it? For who was it that cursed the fig tree? It was Jesus himself. And then he says, have faith in who? In God. Now, as we dig into this a bit further, I want you to notice some things about this faith that Jesus calls them to. As we look at these qualities or characteristics of faith, I want you to ask yourself personally, is this the kind of faith that one, I possess? And is this the kind of faith that I am practically by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit of God seeking to exercise this kind of faith at the present time? Is this the kind of faith that I possess? And is this the kind of faith that by God's grace I'm seeking to exercise during the present, my personal trials, or what we see in our country? I want you to notice that this faith is essential. The faith that Jesus commands here is essential faith. This is not some, in other words, secondary virtue. This is not a take it or leave it issue here to have faith in God. To have faith in God is an imperative here. This is a command by our Lord in verse 22. This is a command to be followed, to be obeyed, to be appropriated to our lives by God's grace. You know, we often excuse our lack or absence of faith in God. Somebody might ask us, you know, how was your week this week, brother or sister? And we might say, you know, it was a good week. You know, I didn't struggle with this and I didn't do that. And I didn't go out and commit sexual immorality. And I didn't go out and slander anybody. We have our, our sins that we highlight in life, right? We pick and choose what is worse or what is better. But we don't often talk about this. You know what, brother, sister? It was a tough week just as, as far as trusting in God. I really didn't manifest a trust in God, a genuine heartfelt faith in my Lord. And I need to confess that. To not have faith, to not trust in the Lord, beloved, is a sin. Sure, we need God's grace to trust Him. It's not something we can do in and of ourselves, of course. But the absence of trust or faith in the Lord is actually a sin that we need to repent of. Obviously, we all struggle with that. But if you characteristically, as a pattern of life, tend to condone that sin, you need to confess that to the Lord. Faith in God is essential. Jesus commands it of us. Secondly, I want you to notice, not only is faith essential, this faith is is a lifestyle. Faith is a lifestyle. The command to have faith in God in verse 22 is in the present tense. It's a present tense command, which means the present tense that we are to continually, characteristically, habitually trust God in all things at all times in life. Not just occasionally. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when it's easy and calm. God's people are to be people who 
exemplify faith by God's grace at all times, in all circumstances. Faith is essential. Faith is a lifestyle. Thirdly, I want you to notice that this faith has an object, doesn't it? This faith has an object. It's faith in who? Faith in God. Faith in God. God alone is the object of our Christian faith. You see, Christian faith is completely different from any other faith in the world or philosophy. Christian faith is different than all other faiths. Christian faith is a transfer of trust from yourself to God. Christian faith is a transfer of trust from yourself, your good works, your good deeds, your abilities, your resources, your gifting, your materialism, and it's faith in the Lord. Faith in God alone. This is true in our conversion, where we understand when we come to Faith in Jesus at the very beginning, there is nothing that we bring to the cross of Calvary except our sin. We come with empty hands of faith to the, to, to the cross of Calvary, don't we? Lord, forgive me. There is nothing that I have to boast in. There is nothing that I can say that you are going to grant me favor because of this in my life, because I own this or I possess that. We learn this at the very point of our conversion, when we come with empty hands of faith, but also it's true that as we walk with God in our relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ, we daily recognize, don't we, that there is nothing that we can do on our own. That there is nothing, nothing, nothing. No way that you and I can live with joy and peace apart from God's help. So we walk by faith, don't we? As Christians. And so it's not faith in myself, like the self esteem movement or like the positive thinking movement says. It's not faith in yourself. And you see this kind of thing all over our culture, don't you? I'm sure you've seen athletes on television being asked after the Lakers championship, maybe last year, LeBron, what was the what was the, the, the key to your success? What was the key to your success, LeBron, or whoever else? What do the athletes typically answer? You know, I just, and I just, you know, I just get believing in myself. I just kept believing in myself. Or my teammates just kept passing me the ball because they kept believing in me. Or we just kept believing in one another. And therefore we won the championship. We just kept trusting in each other, trusting in myself, me, myself, and I, right? That's our culture. But listen to me. Saving, sanctifying, sustaining faith, the kind that will get you through your personal trials right now as we speak or in our country, whatever it might be, is not faith in yourself. It's faith in God, beloved. Faith in Him. It's not faith in myself. It's not faith in my faith, is it? We're not, Christian faith is not faith in your faith. Think about this. A lot of that going on as well. Faith in your faith. If faith is, is only as strong as its object, and you're trusting in your faith, 
then your faith is going to be very weak and very unstable. Because we're constantly changing. We're constantly fluctuating as human beings. We are weak and frail. Our circumstances are constantly changing. If you, you are trusting in your faith, then your faith wavers all the time, doesn't it? But if you have faith in the God of the Bible, then that faith will carry you through the hardest, toughest trials and temptations and difficulties of life. Right? You've experienced this many a time. Why is this? Because God is infinite in power, limitless in authority. He never wavers. He is the rock, the fortress, the deliverer, the ever-present help in time of trouble. God does not waver even though our circumstances and we ourselves might fluctuate and waver, right? He never does. This is why your daily Bible reading is so important, by the way. Think about this. You're not doing your daily Bible reading just so that you could be a good Calvary member who is committed, right? That's not why we're encouraging you to do that. So you could be proud of the fact that you're checking off the, the box every single day and all of that. Why are you doing daily Bible reading? The greatest goal is that you would come to know God more intimately and more profoundly, right? And in so doing, your faith is bulked up. Your faith is strengthened as you come face to face with who God is as revealed in the pages of His Holy Word. It's to know God so that our faith is strengthened. And so it's faith in God as our object. It's not faith in another God. It's not faith in the impersonal Muslim God. It's not faith in the guilt-imposing God of Roman Catholicism. It's not faith in, in Brahma, the God of Hinduism. It's faith in the God of the Bible, isn't it? Christian faith is different than any other faith in the world. In this time of ambiguity and vagueness and people talking about faith like some gaseous force that's undefined and vague, we need to define what this means for us as believers because it's got pertinence to the way that we live victoriously and well under our trials and tribulations in the present time. So think about this. Christian faith is essential. Christian faith is a lifestyle. Christian faith has an object, and that object is the God of the Bible. Can I give you one last one? This faith is exclusive. This faith is exclusive in that the Lord Jesus is the only way for you to get to heaven. He is the only way. I can't say this enough every single sermon, especially in our present times. The exclusivity of Christ. This is the whole point of the Gospels, isn't it? John twenty thirty one says that these things that were written about Jesus have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name, in the name of Christ alone. And I added the alone part because that's what the text means. In Him alone, not in any other name. Christ is exclusively the only way for sinners to be forgiven of their sins and to be made right with God and to receive eternal life. Christ in Christ alone. 
In Acts 17, 31, it says that God has fixed a day when he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. Not through any other name, through any other entity. It's through Jesus Christ. And in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ alone. There aren't many paths that lead to heaven. Not all roads lead to heaven. Heaven is exclusively, found exclusively through the one Lord and Savior. His name is Jesus. Amen? Jesus. By the way, it's not Jesus plus, plus another God. It's not Jesus plus another worldly philosophy or ideology like self-esteem and self-fulfillment or self-actualization, reaching your full potential making sure that you attain all the things that you want to attain in life, and then you sprinkle a little Jesus on top of your goals having been met. It's Jesus alone, exclusively, who is the object of our faith. And so the faith that our Lord commands here is distinct from the vague and ambiguous and undefined faith of our culture, isn't it? We must keep that in mind even as we share the gospel, beloved. As we bring the truth to bear upon people who are asking for hope, make sure that you define things for them according to God's word because there's a lot of vagueness. There's a lot of counterfeit gospels with a little G, if you will, right now. So-called good news. Take your gospel eraser and make sure that you are exposing those things and showing from God's word what the gospel is with a capital G. The good news concerning the person and the work of Christ of how sinners can be reconciled to their maker and glorify him, which was the reason for which they were created. That's the gospel centered on the person and the work of Christ. His death on Calvary as this great sin bearer and as the one who took upon God's punishment for our sins. And by faith in that sacrifice, not our works, not in anything that we bring to the table, by faith in Christ and Christ alone, we can be forgiven and reconciled to our maker. Amen? Preach that gospel. Share that gospel. Expose false gospels. And preach this gospel more than ever before. Now watch this. Having used Peter's somewhat surprised observation about the fig tree as a teaching moment about the importance of faith, now the Lord in verses 23 to 26 makes the the connection between faith and our need to be prayerful people. And so we see thirdly in verses 23 to 26, living faith expressed. Living faith expressed. We've seen dead faith illustrated True faith commanded. Now we see thirdly, living faith expressed in verses 23 to 26. Someone has said that living faith supremely expresses itself in a commitment to prayer. That prayer is the ultimate expression of a man or woman of faith. I agree with that. I agree with that. I've been rereading again the Memoirs of Robert Murray McShane, which I commend to you. It's a great work, not just for pastors and leaders. It's for all Christians. The Memoirs of Robert Murray McShane. And I love this quote at one point in the book that he says about or he wrote about prayer. You've maybe heard it before. What man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. End quote. 
what a man or woman is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Sobering and yet so true, isn't it? And as our Lord commands his disciples here to have faith in God, he now emphasizes, listen, he emphasizes prayer as the expression, the outworking of their faith in God. In fact, notice the emphasis on prayer in these verses. In verse 23, he uses figurative language, as we're going to see, to communicate the concept of prayer. Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, we'll look at that in a minute. Look at verse 24. He clarifies in verse 24 what he means. Therefore, I say to you, verse 24, all things for which you pray and ask. And those are present tense verbs, by the way. Continually pray and continually ask. And then look at verse 25. He says, when you stand praying, not if you stand praying, when you do so. There is an emphasis here on prayer But I want you to note that Jesus has two particular kinds of prayer in this context in mind. First, he calls for believing prayer. He calls for believing, trusting prayer in verses 23 and 24. To this this ongoing prayer that seeks the face of your heavenly Father, believing, trusting that He hears you, that He cares, and that He answers. Look at verse 23. Truly, I say to you. That phrase always introduces a statement of supreme importance. You especially need to listen to what I'm about to say. Pay attention to this, in other words. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Now, obviously... Jesus wasn't in the business of casting mountains into the sea, though certainly he was capable of that kind of manifestation, right, of his power. Nor is he asking his disciples to to pray for this. He's speaking figuratively here. In fact, there are some who believe that this was a, a common slogan of the time to refer metaphorically to great rabbis or teachers of the day who could solve great problems or difficult problems to seemingly do the impossible. Either way, I think we can be sure that the Lord is speaking figuratively here, hyperbolically, if you will, using exaggerated language to make a point to his disciples, to make a lasting impression on them. One pastor comments, quote, obviously, Jesus did not literally uproot mountains. In fact, he refused to do such spectacular miracles for the unbelieving Jewish leaders. Jesus' point is that if believers sincerely trust in God and truly realize the unlimited power that is available through such faith in him, they will see his mighty powers at work. Well said. In metaphorical language, Jesus is making a key point about the fact that we should offer to God believing, trusting prayer. Believing, trusting prayer. In fact, in verse 24, he clarifies, if you notice, what he just meant by the hyperbole. Verse 24, therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. The verb there, by the way, to believe is an imperative. Again, it's a, it's a command to be obeyed. What our Lord is saying is this, as you continually ask, 
As you continually pray, you do so believing or trusting that God hears and will answer your prayers. That's what he's saying. We are to pray expectantly. We are to pray in an anticipatory fashion, anticipating the loving, listening ear of our Heavenly Father, beloved. That He listens, that He cares, that He will answer us. Casting all your anxieties upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. Did you notice the condition in verse 23? Look there. Truly I say to you, verse 23, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. There's your condition. Trusting, believing prayer is not double-minded, doubting prayer. In fact, in James chapter 1, if you turn there with me, turn to James chapter 1. Great text for us to look at together about this condition of how we ought to come to God in prayer. James chapter 1 is our instructions by James to Jewish Christians primarily in the context of trials and tests. And in chapter 1 of James, verse 5, he says this in the context of trials. But if any of you lacks wisdom, and here's the command, let him ask of God. Present tense command, continually ask of God if you need wisdom in the context of trials. Why? It says, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James says, when you're in need of God's help, ask him. Ask him. Why? Because of his character. Because of his character. Because he is generous. He gives to all generously. Literally, he's a continually giving God. He's a continuously generous God. And that word generous there means sincere. Unhypocritically, you might say. He gives to those who ask him without having second thoughts about his kindness shown toward you. He gives lavishly without pretense. Our Heavenly Father. He's generous. What a motivation to come to the Lord. Amen? He's generous. He wants you to to come to Him. James adds there then that also God gives without reproach. God gives without reproach. God doesn't ever say, Ah, geez. Here comes my kid campus again. This child of mine is always asking for things. He never learns his lesson. It's never enough. No matter what I do, he doesn't do that to us. Aren't you glad that God is different than us human parents? <laughs> Whether explicitly or, or maybe we think it. We fail so often as parents in that area, don't we? We're often not generous. We're, we're often not without reproach when our children come to us. Yet again, but our Heavenly Father, beloved, never tires of us. James says, continually ask of God for wisdom because He is generous and He gives without reproach. And then look at James 1.6. He says that we must ask in faith without any doubting, however. But the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man, that doubting, unstable man, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, And then watch verse 8. 
being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You need to underline that that word in verse 8, double-minded, in your Bible. Underline it. Double-minded in verse 8. That's a great word, great imagery. It's, it's the dipsukas man or woman. The dipsukas person, the, the, literally the two-souled person. The split personality person. The divided person who gives lip service to trusting and believing God on the outside, but on the inside you are sinfully doubting and questioning the goodness and kind intentions of God continually in your life. The dipsukas divided person. James says, don't be that Christian. Don't be divided in your affections toward God and your response toward Him in prayer, even when you come asking Him. Come to God continually asking, continually pleading, and believe that He listens and that He cares and that He will answer you. Now, this doesn't mean that He will always answer right away or that He's always going to say yes to everything that we ask. What it means, beloved, is that He will answer us. And He has. Again, we can look back at our life journey and be reminded again and again of how He's done that. His track record of faithfulness. Sometimes the answer is no. And I've received many a no in my lifetime of Christian journey. Sometimes the answer is yes. And many times the answer is wait, isn't it? Wait. Rest in me. Wait. Rest. My son, my daughter. Oftentimes that's the answer. And whatever his answer might be, brother or sister, you and I can rest assured that it is the right answer. Amen? It's the right answer. Because he knows better than we do. He sees everything as we don't see. He has the power and authority to bring about everything that he has pre-planned for us from before the foundation of the world. Because of His character, in other words, we can trust Him. He's trustworthy because of who He is. Even in godless times, even in times of great uncertainty in our lives or in our country. I want to ask you this morning, are you praying? Oh, Pastor, that's kind of a basic question. Of course, are you? Are you? I've spoken to people, mostly outside of this body, who... Their prayer lives are down in the dumps. And it's a struggle, isn't it? How many of us can say this morning, you know, I just that's just an area where I just excel, baby. I just excel as a prayer warrior. I mean, I don't really have any room. Can anybody say that here? Everybody look around to make sure that you can confront this person right afterward, okay? None of us can say that. It's a struggle, isn't it? I struggle with this, and I'm sure you struggle with this. But can I ask you, are you praying? Are you spending time with the Lord? And in your prayers, do you really believe? Do you really trust because of who God is and His character that He cares for you, that He's concerned for you, that He will answer you? Colossians 4.2 says that we need to devote ourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And listen to Ephesians 6.18, which says that we are to pray with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And that's in the context of spiritual warfare, hence the urgency of those alls. All, 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 all. Praying at all times for everyone. 
Being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The context of spiritual warfare. And so how about you, brother or sister? Is your faith being expressed, being shown, and first of all, secret prayer in your closet of prayer? Wherever that might be. On walks. On your knees. And then throughout the day, unceasingly, quiet prayers, silent prayers, praise-filled prayers. Lord, I just need you kind of prayers. Lord, help me kind of prayers. He loves those prayers, I can tell you right now, brothers and sisters. Just read the Psalms. Our Heavenly Father wants us to, to come to Him in secret prayer. And He wants us to come to Him in corporate communal prayer. This is why in this 2021 year of discipleship here at the church, beloved, we need for every single one of you, for your good and for the good of your brethren, and ultimately more than anything else, for the glory of God, but for your benefit on the human level to be in small groups. Get involved in a fellowship group if you're not. Get connected to a fellowship group. Get connected to a midweek men's or women's small group which emphasize Bible content and fellowship and relationship. And thirdly, prayer and accountability. There are prayer requests being shared so that you are praying for your brethren and your brethren are praying for you. And we are, Galatians 6.1, bearing one another's burdens and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ through prayer. Get involved. Get connected. You need to be praying for one another. How desperately we need to be seeking the face of Almighty God. Amen, beloved? Philippians 4, 6 says, To be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then listen to this. And the peace of God which comes from God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but in the midst of these tumultuous times, I want to experience, experience the peace of God. Don't you? The peace of God. How does that come? By casting all of our anxieties, all of our burdens upon God. Because He is adequate. He is sufficient. We are insufficient and inadequate. We are not enough. God is enough. Cast your burdens upon Him personally and communally. And believing, trusting prayer. No, we need to be praying for our country right now. We need to be praying for our country. By the way, you need to be praying for the new administration. Did you hear that? Just like you prayed four years ago for the administration that came on four years ago, you need to pray for this new corrupt administration as four years ago that was a corrupt administration in a broken, fallen world. We need to pray for President Biden, for Mr. Biden. You say, why should I do that? I don't agree with all of this that you hear about the... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter as it pertains to you coming before God and praying for your government in accordance with 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, which commands you to pray for this administration. Listen to 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. And here it is. For kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life 
in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man, what's his name? Christ Jesus. We need to be praying evangelistically. We need to be praying for President Biden's salvation. We need to be praying that God would surround him with people in his administration who are real, genuine, healthy believers who are going to speak truth into his life. We need to be praying, beloved, believing, trusting that God can do amazing things. And so first, Jesus calls for believing prayer in verses 23 to 24. But secondly, notice, he calls for unhypocritical prayer in verses 25 to 26. This takes us back to last week's message on the danger of hypocritical worship. Here, Jesus connects some dots for us. And he reminds us once again and helps us realize that as we come to our Heavenly Father in prayer, God, our Heavenly Father in the family of God, takes notice of how you and I are relating to one another because after all, we are spiritual family, aren't we? With God being our heavenly Father. Look at verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Why? So that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. And then verse 26, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now we're not going to take time extensively right now to look into this, but if you have the New American Standard Version, did you notice the brackets around verse 26? Did you notice that? What the brackets signal to the reader is that the best most reliable manuscripts available to us don't contain verse 26 here in Mark 11. What happened is that at some point, a scribe added verse 26 to expand upon and clarify perhaps verse 25. Not to worry. Not to worry at all. The insertion doesn't change the interpretation of this passage at all. And I want you to take note that verse 26 does appear in Matthew 6.15 in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the words are certainly very applicable. What our Lord is telling His disciples and us here is that if in our ongoing relationship with our Father, we expect His ongoing forgiveness, relationally speaking, in our experience that is, we best make sure that we are doing the same thing with other brothers and sisters in Christ, with one another. Now, this is not speaking of God's judicial forgiveness. Important distinction here. This is not speaking of God's judicial forgiveness, that once for all forgiveness of God toward us solely based upon the merits of Christ on the cross. That forgiveness, beloved, is done once for all. It is fixed It is done. It is finished. Amen? We don't add or take anything away from God's judicial forgiveness of us and our entrance into that relationship with Him. But what this is talking about is the experience, the benefits of God's ongoing paternal forgiveness. Now as His children. 
that now as God's children, our Father expects us to practice the same forgiveness that He regularly and freely extends to us. And so notice, in the context of faith-fueled prayer, this is a sobering reminder and caution by our Lord that we need to be people who pray unhypocritically. Unhypocritically. That we remember that as we pray, while our Christianity is intensely personal, it is far from private, isn't it? We are now a part of a body, part of a community of believers. And our Heavenly Father, similar to how a, a human parent or human parents care about the way that the kids are getting along, our Heavenly Father cares about the way that we are getting along, right? How we interact with one another. So, beloved, God wants people of faith in godless times. And what an opportunity we have this week, don't we? What an opportunity we have this week to live out our faith, the theology that we claim to believe in, when there is potential disruption this week in government change. And it may happen, it may not. We don't need to fear. We don't need to fear. For those who know their God, we do not need to fear, brothers and sisters. Our confidence should have never been in who, what government takes over or doesn't. Ultimately, should we pray for those things? Should we search the scriptures and and all of those political? Yes. But ultimately, our confidence was not in any of those things. In one president over the other. In one candidate over the other. One political party over the other. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We are citizens of another kingdom. And we anticipate King Jesus' return. He is our hope. He is our hope. And I love Psalm 910. Psalm 910. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know God's name, brothers and sisters, trust their heavenly Father. We trust Him. One's name in Scripture pointed to one's unique identity that distinguished them from somebody else. But one's name also points to their character. And what Psalm 9 and verse 10 is saying is those who know the name of God, those who know who God is, His character, His majesty, His glory, His faithfulness, His love, His justice, His wrath, His righteousness, those who know His name and all that He's about, trust Him. If you know your God, Calvary Bible Church, you will trust God this week by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the reminder from the words of our Lord that we need to be people of faith. I can't even begin to imagine, Father, how the disciples must have been feeling at the time to anticipate the suffering and the death of Christ, whom they were with for three to three and a half years by that time. And now with his impending death, how important it was for them to be people of faith, men of faith who were then to carry the baton to make disciples in this world. Lord, help us to learn the lesson of our Lord that we need to be people of faith and that we would put our trust in you, the God of Scripture, 
and in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even this week, Lord, help us to exude your joy, your profound peace, the peace that surpasses all comprehension because our trust is in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.